I'll do anything to be healthy, except eat right and exercise. We laugh when the comedian shares this insight from the stage, but cringe when we realize the truth of that in our own lives and the lives of those around us. What is going on? Intriguingly, our brains are finely tuned based on a world that, for most, no longer exists. Extremely palatable foods combining sugar, salt, fat, and the like didn't exist until recently in human history. As such, instincts designed to prevent starvation have carried us into a lifetime of obesity, diabetes, and much more. So what can we do? Welcome to the Health, Wellness, and Performance Catalyst. I'm your host, Dr. Brad Cooper, co-founder of the Catalyst Coaching Institute. Today's guest is neuroscientist and best-selling author of The Hungry Brain, Dr. Stephen Guyanet. Dr. Guyanet has a bachelor's degree in biochemistry, a PhD in neuroscience, and completed a postdoc fellowship in the neuroscience of obesity and eating behavior. His research publications in scientific journals have been cited more than 2,100 times. He doesn't simply identify the science behind why we do what we do. Instead, he provides key insights on how we, or our friends, coaching clients, and others, can effectively change course and thus change our lives for the better. Speaking of changing lives, this is often the time of year when we start pondering our own lives and how we'd like to change the trajectory of where we're heading. If you've been considering pursuing your certification as a health and wellness coach, either as a complete career change or as a side business to bring in some extra income, now is the perfect time to get started. The next NBHWC-approved coach certification cohort through the Catalyst Coaching Institute doesn't officially get started until late January. However, it's been filling up quickly, and if you register now, not only can you lock in that spot so you don't have to worry about missing that, but you can also get started on some of the supplementary coursework prior to the kickoff if you'd like to do that. It's a big decision, so please feel free to reach out to us anytime. Email is results at catalystcoachinginstitute.com. And if you'd like, we can set up some time to discuss any questions you may have. Or you can check out all the details on the website, catalystcoachinginstitute.com. Now, it's time to take a bite out of our hungry brain's natural tendencies with Dr. Stephen Guyanet on the Hidden Gem episode of the Health, Wellness, and Performance Catalyst. Dr. Guyanet, very good to have you here. Thanks for having me, Brad. The audience knows your background. They know your education, very extensive education. They know about your book. How did you come to study the neuroscience of behavior and obesity? That's a, that's a pretty dialed in and incredibly timely topic to have on your radar screen for as long as it has been. Yeah, it was kind of a convergence of different interests for me. So I, I mean, I've known, I've been into science since a very young age, and I pretty much always knew that I would do something related to science. And I was particularly interested in neuroscience because the brain is one of the main remaining frontiers in science. Uh, it's one of the things that we have yet to learn much about. I've also been interested in health and fitness from a pretty young age and uh, ended up going to college and studying biochemistry with the idea that I would use that, I would apply that to neuroscience. And then in graduate school, I did a PhD in neuroscience and I was studying a neurodegenerative disease that's pretty rare and decided I wanted to work on something that was more impactful. Mm. And so, and at that time I was learning a lot more about nutrition and body fatness and fitness. And I was seeing that, hey, this has to do with the brain. And guess what? I have a PhD in neuroscience. So <laughs> I decided to um, merge my interest in fitness and body fatness with my interest in neuroscience. And I did a postdoc in uh, neuroscience of obesity with Mike Schwartz at the University of Washington, uh, who's really one of the fathers of leptin research, leptin being the most important hormone in, in body fat regulation. And so it pretty quickly dawned on me that if we were going to understand obesity, we were studying the right organ, that is to say the brain. Hmm. And this is really, if you sit back and think about it, it should be pretty obvious to anyone. The brain generates all of our behaviors, right? Whether that's eating behavior, how much you eat, what you eat, how we move our bodies, and it also regulates a lot of our physiology, including how much fat we have on our body, what our hunger level is, what's going on in our digestive tract, what's going on in the pancreas, et cetera, et cetera. And so 
I mean, it's, it's a pretty obvious frame to take when you're thinking about obesity, why some people have it, why some people don't, you know, how food environment and foods impact it. It's a pretty obvious frame to take, but it was a frame that I wasn't seeing people take commonly in the public sphere. And so, uh, and, and of course, in the research community, people had been taking that frame for a long time and there was lots of research on it, lots of review papers on it. But that information that was so profoundly informative was not really trickling down to the general public. There was really an information mm. vacuum I perceived, and that was allowing all kinds of harebrained theories to proliferate. So I decided that I wanted to be the guy to communicate this to the public, and that led to the publication of my book, The Hungry Brain, which is really the first that I'm aware of, the first general audience book that steps back and focuses somewhat comprehensively on the role of the brain in eating behavior and body fatness. I love it. I love it. Can, can you broaden us out a little bit here and give us that 10,000 foot view of your research, kind of set the context for our conversation today for those people listening? Basically, the, the big picture is that, you know, we evolved via natural selection to perform well in certain types of environments that our ancestors lived in. And for most of human existence, we were hunter gatherers trying to, uh, you know, extract calories out of a difficult landscape. Then after that for, you know, depending on your ancestry, anywhere between 100 and 10,000 years, we've been more agricultural based. Um, and so, but still living as predominantly subsistence uh, in, in a subsistence manner, meaning that mm -hmm. we are the primary producers of everything we eat. So everything that goes, crosses your lips for, mo for almost all of human existence is something that you either hunted, gathered, or grew yourself. And so obviously that is radically different than the way we live today, almost all of us in affluent industrialized nations. And so basically what's happened is that we have what's called an evolutionary mismatch where the way that our brain circuits were designed to interact with our food and our food environment in terms of the types of foods that are available, the ease with, with which we can obtain those foods, mm -hmm. and that sort of thing is profoundly mismatched with the way our brains are designed. So our brains are calibrated for a world in which it's not so easy to get food. Mm. And yet we live in a world where it's incredibly easy to get food. And, you know, we like to complain about the cost of food, but the truth is that it's never been cheaper in all of human history. If you factor in effort and time cost, food is way cheaper in the modern United States than it's ever been in, in human history. It's about 10% of our disposable income currently in the U S and that includes a lot of eating out. So basically, um, these, these brain systems that we evolved to cause us to eat the right amount of food and the right type of food in an ancestral environment are essentially misfiring in the modern environment. And mm -hmm. a lot of these circuits, this is really the premise of my book, is that a lot of these circuits are non-conscious. So these are things that are hardwired into your brain to generate, uh, they're hardwired into your brain and they evolve to generate specific motivational states and specific scenarios that drive you to specific eating outcomes. And so, for example, hunger. You know, hunger is not something that you choose to experience. You don't say, oh, hey, it's six o'clock. Uh, I feel like being hungry, so I'm going to be hungry right now. No, it's something that arises from non-conscious brain regions and you experience it as a result of that. Cravings are the same way. You don't decide whether or not you're going to have a craving. A craving arises from non-conscious brain regions and then you experience it. And so, and, and there are other things like this. There's satiety, there's hunger, there's cravings, there is the circuits that non-consciously regulate your body fatness that affect your metabolism and uh, set the gain on your, your appetite and other things like that that are these are all hardwired systems in the brain that we actually know a fair amount about how they work in terms of how the neurons are hooked up and what chemicals they're using to communicate, what hormones and nerve signals they're responding to. And all of this stuff 
these systems just basically push us to overeat in the modern food environment because they're receiving the wrong signals today. So you talk about a quote I pulled from a previous interview you were involved with. You talk about the main driver of overconsumption isn't pleasure, but motivation. Can you take us on a deeper dive of what you mean by that? Oh, yeah. We're getting into it now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So we often talk about food palatability or the you know, how delicious the food is. That's Mm -hmm. something a lot of people talk about as a factor that impacts food intake. I talk about that as a factor that impacts food intake. But the truth is that that's kind of a oversimplification of how the process works. So on a neurobiological level, pleasure and motivation are two things that usually travel together, but are not the same thing and do not always travel together. So for example, there's research, I think Kent Barrage is one of the people, maybe the main person who advanced this idea. In uh, rodents, there are certain brain pathways, certain brain pathways that stimulate motivation that will get those rodents to eat a ton of food. So you stimulate those pathways and put food in front of them and they'll eat a bunch of food. But if you measure, there are certain measures you can use that indicate how much they like the eating that they're doing, what's the pleasure response to that food, and it's unchanged. So what it appears like is that they are overeating due to a heightened motivational state, but not experiencing heightened pleasure in response to that overeating. And so, and this is something we see in the context of like gambling addiction and drug addiction. I mean, if you... I don't know if you've ever been to a casino, but if you walk through a casino at like really early in the morning, like let's say three or 4 a.m., there are people sitting in front of slot machines <laughs> by themselves pulling the lever. You know what I mean? And they're often like kind of rough looking. Do you think those people are enjoying playing the slot machine at that moment at 4 a.m., like spending their social security check or whatever it is? I mean, I seriously doubt they're enjoying themselves, um, but they are motivated to continue doing that in a, you know, basically they have a runaway motivational state that we would often refer to as addiction right? Um, in response to that, to that stimulus. So there are situations where motivation and pleasure can be separable. And really when we, when we're talking about, you know, because they can be separable, I think when we're talking about food intake, what we really care about is motivation because motivation is what gets you to actually engage in the behavior. Pleasure is just a state you experience as you're engaging in the behavior or after the behavior. So, you know, pleasure is not what gets you to eat the ice cream. Pleasure is the state that you experience as you're eating the ice cream. So it's not the difference between eating it and not eating it. It's not the difference between eating a lot of it and not eating a lot of it. The difference for that is motivation. And so in real life, most of the time, motivation and pleasure co-occur. So if you have a craving to eat ice cream and you fulfill that craving by eating ice cream, you will experience pleasure as you eat the ice cream. So those are neurobiological processes that in real life, most of the time are actually pretty well linked to one another. So this is why I don't generally spend a lot of time trying to suss this out because I think it confuses people and doesn't necessarily lead to a lot of practical value. Yeah. So often I will just, sometimes I will just say palatability, but what I really mean, what I really care about is more like motivation. And another word that I use that I think conveys that better is seductiveness. So rather than talking about food palatability, we can talk about food seductiveness because that's not just about how much you enjoy it. That's about how much it calls to you, Mm -hmm. how much of a craving it stimulates, how much of a motivational state it generates that causes you to engage in that eating behavior. So I like that word seductiveness because it's, it's, uh, it's it's a good picture. Yeah. And it, and it's a, it's an intuitively easy word to understand. Mm -hmm. Like you hear that and you're like, oh yeah, I know what you're talking about as opposed to using, you know, the technical term 
reward or food reward and right. people just aren't quite sure what I'm talking about. Okay. So on a practical level, you've taken us on a deep dive. Now, if we pop back out to the surface and say, and this means X for those of us trying to control what we're eating, and, and we'll, we'll dig into this a little bit more, but can you give us a few hints along those lines of, okay, so what? We have a difference between motivation and pleasure. Now what? Yeah. So I think the thing to focus on is food seductiveness. And I want to take a little step back and I want to talk about what the brain finds seductive. Okay. So what is it about food that the brain wants that makes the brain cause cravings, cause liking, cause, you know, drive you toward that eating behavior that's often hard to control? So essentially, our brains are hardwired to respond to specific physical and chemical properties in food with the release of a chemical called dopamine in the mm -hmm. brain. Okay. Dopamine is a key chemical that mediates motivation and learning about how to be motivated by different things. And so the substances in food that stimulate dopamine release that are either known or strongly suspected to do so are carbohydrate, so including starch and sugar, fat, protein, glutamate, which is an amino acid. So it's kind of like protein, but it's a little bit different. That's the meaty umami flavor that is in soy sauce and MSG and bone broth and cooked meats. And then salt, sodium chloride. So those are all things humans are hardwired to want. They're things that every culture enjoys eating. You know, if you go to Sichuan province in China, people are going to like salt and fat. If you go to Paris, people are going to like salt and fat. But there are many other things that there are many other preferences that those two cultures may not share. People in Sichuan may be disgusted by strong French cheeses and people in France may not enjoy you know, the, the flavor profile or the texture of Szechuan cooking. But those really basic elements that cause dopamine to be released in the brain are things that all humans enjoy and prefer and are motivated by. So the, basically, the higher the concentration of those things up to a point that we call the bliss point will cause more and more dopamine release in the brain. And the way to get maximum dopamine release is to combine those things together. So if you think about chocolate, for example, chocolate is fat and sugar together in a really concentrated form, right? And then you can add salt. Now you have Reese's peanut butter cups. A lot of people really like that. So, so essentially calorie dense combinations of these things stimulate a lot of dopamine in the human brain. And of course, these substances that I just mentioned that cause dopamine release, all of them except salt are delivering calories to the body. Sure. And so basically the brain is calibrated to be motivated to seek calories in food. And that's not surprising because as Herman Ponser said, Herman Ponser is an anthropologist who I interviewed for my book. He said, life is a game of turning energy into kids. So from an evolutionary standpoint, it's all about obtaining energy and then using it to increase your reproductive success. And so basically the brain is very focused on obtaining calories from the environment. That's how we're, our motivation is wired. So how do we overcome that though? Is it, because as you're talking, I'm thinking, and I'm sure everybody has their different preferences, including you, but I'm thinking, well, that's not so appealing to me, but that is. And is it because I have a different motivation that overrules my desire for that thing? Well, humans are very complex and there are a lot of different things that go into our motivations and our eating behaviors. Sure. However, if you look on an average population level, you can see that people do gravitate toward calorie dense combinations of these ingredients. So, you know, if you look at the top sources of calories in the US diet, the top 10 is all like pizza yeah. and cakes and cookies. I think you tweeted that out the other day. I thought that was a cool drinks. list. Yeah. Yeah. So, and yeah, and it's in my book as well. So like, and if you look at the foods that people crave the most, it's the same thing. They're all calorie dense combinations of these things. When you look at foods that are 
lower calorie density and are predominantly just one of those things like brown rice or salmon with, you know, plain salmon Mm -hmm. or lentils or things like that. They're not things that people lose control over. They're not things that people have strong cravings for. They don't stimulate as much dopamine in the brain. And so, you know, there's not, I don't think there's really a cure. There's nothing that's going to make you stop liking ice cream. I don't think there's anything that's going to make <laughs> me stop liking ice cream. And that's a problem because ice cream is available and that's Everywhere. not going to change either. Right. But I think that if we design a diet that has properties that don't stimulate those brain regions as much, those dopamine releasing and dopamine conditioned brain regions, if we surround ourselves, or I should say, if we have a food environment that presents foods to us that don't cause dopamine to spike as much, it's going to be much easier for us to control our eating behavior. We'll end up eating fewer calories without experiencing more hunger and also controlling your food environment. Because if you have foods around you all the time, that's going to get your dopamine spiking as well. And so really to control that seductiveness that we often struggle with, you want to first reduce the problem foods that you're eating that are calorie dense combinations of those substances I mentioned. And, and, you know, this boils down, this boils down a lot to common sense. I want to be really clear about that. Like basically the things we think about that stimulate dopamine release a lot are junk foods. They're the things we know we shouldn't be eating a lot, like pizza and ice cream and candy bars and whatever, but, but also some things we don't necessarily think about as much, like bread and crackers and cheese and that sort of thing. But the food environment is huge too, because if you, it's, it's those visual cues or the smell cues when you see those foods that previously you've eaten and previously caused lots of dopamine release. When you, when you see those foods, your brain's like, oh, I remember that. And then the dopamine gets spiking even before you start eating it. And that will cause you to want to eat it. And that can be hard to control. And that's called a craving, of course. So is um, that the main take-home message for folks of, and like you said, it's common sense, but, but is that the main item that we can take away is you've got to be so aware of your situation. And, and that fits your seductiveness wording, because when you think about your potential for an affair or getting drawn into other things that are unhealthy for you and potentially ruinous for you, you, you're careful about what situations you put yourself in. You don't walk yourself out to the edge of the bridge and hope you don't fall off. Are you saying that's the primary takeaway in terms of this one aspect is don't make it readily available? It's okay to have occasionally, but when it's sitting there in your cupboard four feet away, it's not a great decision. Yeah, absolutely. And and I I don't want to give people the impression that this is the only piece of practical advice that I have. But when we're talking about the seductiveness piece of this puzzle, yes, it's all about control your food environment. Don't expose yourself to those cues that get your dopamine spiking. And in the food that you actually eat and that you have in your house, have it be lower in calorie density and lower in these foods and have fewer of these foods that combine multiple dopamine stimulating ingredients together. Okay. That will help you control your motivation and your calorie intake and your waistline. Okay. And then you, you just mentioned something slightly different. You said control the cues. Now that's a, a slightly different train of thought. Is there something in there that you'd like to develop out a little bit more in terms of, it's not just have them available or, or don't have them available, but it's be aware of how you cue yourself. Is that TV ads? Is that what, what, what yes. is that? Yeah. Advertising is part of it. So yeah. So let me explain a little bit more about how dopamine works to, to explain how this works. So Essentially what happens, let's say you eat pizza, you get lots of dopamine going in your brain because your brain says this has lots of things in it that I like. And what your brain does when it gets that, you know, dopamine tsunami is it remembers all of the sensory cues that were that you were experiencing as you were eating that pizza. So mm. the taste of the pizza and the smell of the pizza and the appearance the little round pepperonis and the triangular slices and the greasy box and the place where you ate it and the people you were with and the situation, all of that stuff 
gets stamped into your brain as a motivational trigger the next time you experience those cues. So the next time you experience those cues, let's say you walk in or you walk past the pizza place or it's somebody's birthday and you're accustomed at work to having pizza on birthdays or you smell the smell of the pizza or you see the box, suddenly your dopamine gets spiking again and you have a craving. You're experiencing that motivational state that then you're going to have to grapple with and there's a good chance that you will lose that battle. So essentially, it's those cues that get your dopamine spiking and get your cravings going as a result of previous instances of dopamine mediated reinforcement. And so it's it's just like if you're trying to quit smoking, it's the exact same thing because smoking gets you addicted by stimulating dopamine systems in your brain. So it's the same thing if you're trying to quit smoking cigarettes, you don't go to the bar where you used to smoke, you don't walk into the place where you used to buy cigarettes, you don't leave packs hanging around your house, you don't hang out with the same friends for a little while. Those things are all motivational triggers that before you know it, you'll have a cigarette in your hand again. So I'm not saying that food is as bad as cigarettes, but the analogy is there and the mechanism in the brain is very similar and can be, it can either derail you or you can exploit it to your own benefit. Either way you want to have it. Let let me give you a simpler example. Okay. I, I just, just to make sure that everyone's on board with what I'm talking about on a practical level. So the difference would be between having a bag of chips on the counter where you can see it several times a day and not having that bag of chips there. Let's say having it in the closet. So Every time you walk by that bag of chips and your eyes land on it, <laughs> there is a chance that, that, seduction. that visual cue is going to create a craving in you, a motivational state, and you'll eat some chips. If it's in the closet, you may still eat it sometimes, but you're not going to have that regular visual cue triggering your dopamine and making you more likely to eat it than you otherwise would. And so that's what I'm talking, that's the main thing I'm talking about is getting rid of the food cues specifically. And those can occur due to our own food environment at home, at work, just because we haven't optimized the foods in our surroundings. Um, Or I should say we haven't optimized the availability of foods in our surroundings. And that can also occur through food advertising. So the average American adult sees about 20 food ads a day on television alone. And so we're being bombarded by food cues. Obviously, they're not spending billions of dollars, tens of billions of dollars a year on advertising. They're not paying that money away, right? right? Yeah, I mean, they're doing that because it gets you to buy and consume their food. So that's another way that you that those cues can um, lead to consumption of unhealthy foods. Okay. Okay. Let's jump into your book. So what were some, the, the book is titled The Hungry Brain. It was released in 2017. It got great reviews. What were some of the surprises as you were researching, preparing, writing, putting it all together, talking to different folks? What were some of the surprises that people, if they heard it, would go, wait, what? Or maybe you said that. Um, I think there are a couple of things. So I... I don't think there was anything that really shocked me as I was writing the book because I wrote that book on the basis of a lot of work that I had already done. Mm -hmm. And so I had the backbone of it in my head before I wrote it. How about Um, for the readers though? Were there, was there feedback from your readers where they said, oh my gosh, really? Yeah, absolutely. So one thing is that most people have a dramatically incorrect understanding of the relationship between calorie intake, calorie expenditure, and body weight. So, and this this is an understanding, an incorrect understanding that even a lot of researchers have, even some researchers in the obesity sphere will make incorrect statements about how this works. But basically, you know, you hear this all the time. I'm sure you've heard this, that like, if you eat one fewer slice of toast, Every sure. day you'll lose, I forget what the exact amount is, but a couple pounds of fat a month. And, you know, in a year you'll be 24 pounds down right. and it just keeps going down and down and down. So the implication here is, oh, it's, 
you know, straight line. Why? Yeah, it's a straight line. Why would anyone be obese if all you have to do is eat one fewer slice of toast every day? Come on, it's so easy. Well, that's not actually how it works for a couple of different reasons. And the first reason is that as you lose weight, you require fewer calories to maintain your body mass. So basically, you lose weight, you're losing tissue, right? And that tissue is metabolically active. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that calorie deficit that you establish by eating one fewer pieces of toast a day, it goes away over time as your body gets smaller. And so basically what happens is you get your maximum amount of weight loss right at first, and then that slows down and slows down and slows down until you eventually plateau. And so the rule of thumb is for every 10 calories, roughly speaking, for every 10 calories that you Um, decrease your intake, you will eventually plateau one pound lighter. And that's just to give credit where credit is due. That's based on Kevin Hall's research. And this is all um, evidence-based, empirically validated models. So this is not just, you know, different people saying different things. This is what the actual data say. And so a slice of bread is, let's say, 100 calories. So you would eventually lose 10 pounds over the course of about three years if you eliminated one slice of bread. So the idea, you know, idea that you would lose what 20 pounds a year or something and keep losing is just so, so, so wrong. But that's an idea that a lot of people have because they hear it from books and they hear it even sometimes from research papers, they hear it on podcasts. Um, It's not how it works. The other thing that causes weight loss to not be as, um, large as expected is that you actually get resistance from circuits in the brain that regulate your body fatness. And this is some of the research that I did, or my research um, is related to this topic, I should say, of brain regulation of body fatness. And so there's what's called a negative feedback loop. And this is a simple engineering term. It's like a, a thermostat, for example. So a thermostat Uh, contains a thermometer that measures the temperature in your house. And let's say you have your thermostat set to 70 degrees Fahrenheit, and then the temperature drops to 69. The thermometer detects that and turns on the heat to bring it back up to 70. If it goes up to 71, your, your thermometer inside your thermostat detects that and kicks on the AC to bring it back to 70. So that's called a negative feedback system, and it's a system that is designed to maintain stability of a parameter, in this case, temperature. So we have a lot of negative feedback loops in biology, including in the human body. And one of the things that is regulated in a manner like this is body fatness. So, and particularly in the negative direction. So the brain opposes weight loss pretty vigorously. And so if you begin to lose weight, the more weight you lose, the more your brain will start to fight it. And the way it does that, so essentially your brain detects a decline in the hormone leptin, which reflects declining body fat stores. And then your brain initiates a a collection of different responses designed to restore that fat. So your hunger goes up, your cravings go up. Suddenly you're more reactive to food cues. You're noticing foods, especially more calorie-dense foods in your environment. Um, and your metabolic rate starts to go down. So you're actually burning less calories going about your day-to-day life than you otherwise would. And so that is one of the main things and possibly even the main thing that opposes weight loss and causes weight regain. And I think if we didn't have that fights against weight loss, I think if that system didn't exist, there would be a lot fewer people with obesity than there are because it would be a lot easier to lose weight than it is. And it would be much easier to maintain weight loss than it is. But it's only generally, only is too strong of a word, but it's generally only in that direction. It doesn't work the other way. It does work the other way. It's just that it seems that it's not quite as powerful and it's not quite as consistent between individuals. Hmm. So we do know that if you're habitually overeating calories, like they, there are a number of these 
so-called overfeeding studies in the obesity research world. Uh, and they're really interesting studies. So basically they get people to eat more calories by one, you know, one means or another, either, mm -hmm. either they're paying them or they're prisoners and they're saying, you know, maybe we'll give you parole and they, they find a way to get people to eat more calories and then they, they see what happens. And basically if you're habitually eating a ton of calories, your appetite drops. So as soon as mm. stop overfeeding people, they typically what's observed is they will undereat for a period after that. So basically the body is saying, no, we're trying to restore balance here. It's, it's doing that negative feedback thing. Appetite goes down and that mediates some of the return back to baseline. However, what you see is that this differs between people. Some people are better at not gaining fat than others, and some people are better at losing it after they overeat than others. And what you see in some studies is that people don't settle back down to their initial weight all the way. So they'll lose most of the excess fat they gained when they were overfeeding, overeating. But if you look at them six months later, they, yeah, they may have lost two thirds of that fat, but they, but a third of it stuck around and doesn't look like it's going anywhere. So not only did they not prevent the fat gain that well, but it actually, that overeating, at least in some cases, seems to result in an upward resetting of the level of body fatness that the brain defends against losses. So at that point, you know, maybe, maybe when they started, they were 170. And if they tried to lose weight from that point, their brain would fight it. And now they're 180. And if they tried to lose weight from that point, their brain would fight that. And gotcha. so it's an upward resetting of the so-called body fat set point. Right. Okay. All right. So it's been, uh, you know, two, two and a half, three years since you wrote your book. If you were to add a chapter today, what would you cover? Yeah, that's a good question. I've been, I've been thinking about this lately. Um, I don't think that there is another chapter I would add, but I think there are a couple of extra things I would discuss or update. And one of them that's kind of interesting, I'm still not quite sure what to make of it, but there is some research suggesting that there may be another biological system that regulates body weight aside from that leptin system that I was talking about. So that system that I was talking about, the leptin system, that, that specifically regulates body fatness. That is a system that specifically measures and regulates body fatness. But there may be another one that actually regulates weight per se, like body mass. And um, that's called the gravitostat. And there's some research suggesting, essentially, if you take some kind of rodent and you put weighted pellets in their abdominal cavity, you basically make them bigger. Okay. Or sorry, you make them heavier yeah, without yeah. making them much bigger. Right. They actually will lose fat mass. They'll eat less and they'll lose fat mass. And that seems to be related to the uh, some signals that are released by bone cells. So the idea is that basically your your bone tissue senses the increased load and releases signals that say, hey, we just gained weight. Let's eat a little bit less and and carry less weight in response. Um, so basically, let's let's um, let's lose that excess weight that we just gained. Well, that's really interesting. So, are, are you? Has it been done with humans? Where we put, uh, you know, I've got a weight vest downstairs. I'll use sometimes with jump rope. Has there been any human studies with that? Where we say, hey, let's throw a fifteen-pound weight vest on you. Let's wear it for a month and see what happens. So, as far as I know, it has not been done in humans. Really? Um, in in any kind of um, scientific way. So, yeah. So these. This research is fairly recent. I don't know mm -hmm. if they're going to try it in humans, but I mean, why not? It seems feasible. Yeah, like you makes said. sense. You can put weight vests on people. I will say that in uh, James Krieger's uh, newsletter, he did have a case study where he discussed one individual who was a bodybuilder, if I recall, who used a weighted vest um, 
successfully to control his appetite and body fatness during a cut. Hmm. And so, yeah. So, and it just, this is N equals one, you know, it's an anecdote. So I don't, I don't want to put too much weight on it, but I mean, if there's, if there are folks out there who just want to experiment with it, it, I think it's very unlikely to do harm. But yeah, basically what this individual found was that if he continually added weight to the vest and wore it all day such that his such that his skeletal loading wasn't changing. So for every pound he lost on his body, he added a pound onto the vest. And if he did that, essentially he found that it was easier for him to maintain a lower calorie intake and a lower level of body fatness going into competition. That was his that was his subjective experience. Some researcher listening to this is gonna dial this one up, my friend. It's Hey, that one makes do. so much sense. So much sense. Okay. So what are some of the key elements being missed out there in the behavior change world? That's the world we live in. There are millions, millions of dollars being spent on obesity, eating habits, the whole thing. And yet, as you mentioned earlier, population outcomes continue to go in the wrong direction. What are we missing? Behavior change is really the missing piece of the puzzle right now. So sure. I think that we have enough information right now on what good diets are and how much we should be eating, yep. how much we should be weighing, et cetera. We have enough information right now to prevent most obesity, almost all diabetes, most cardiovascular disease. But the problem is implementation Yep. because it's really hard to get people, especially on a population level, to stick with these interventions for a lot for the long run. We know that if they do, we have long-term big, good randomized controlled trials showing that you basically can practically prevent type two diabetes um, and even reverse it with pretty simple changes. Yep. But on a population level, what we need is strategies that help people stick to that. And I think that at this point is where more value is going to come from than squabbling over, you know, incremental gains and understanding which diet is better than which other diet. But, you know, the former question is much harder to answer than the latter. So there's a lot of research, more research on the latter. All right. So let me see if I can throw out a couple of ideas. Again, I, you know, I don't want to portray myself as an expert in this area, but I think that understanding the understanding how dopamine works and how motivation works in the brain gives some insight into how to manipulate it and understanding analogies like smoking cessation that I talked about earlier. So basically controlling the situations, the cues that cause dopamine to be released in the brain. So you control the type of food that's around you, you control your exposure to those cues And then a third element that I didn't mention is you create small effort barriers to consumption of foods, particularly between meals. So, you know, if you walk into the kitchen, you don't want to have anything that you can just grab and throw into your mouth. However, you could have some nuts in shell or peanuts, unsalted peanuts in shell. You could have oranges in their peels. So if you're hungry, if you actually really need energy, you can peel an orange and you can eat that orange and, you know, be full. But you're not going to do that unless you're genuinely hungry, unless you mm. really genuinely want that. So that's that's really for me three key things. Don't have the food be too seductive, don't present constant food cues to yourself and create small effort barriers to eating, particularly between meals. I like it. I, I think that suggestion about the nuts that are, they, they have not been shelled. They sell the shells on them is a, a great tip. It just adds that extra step. All right. So if you're trying to help somebody that you cared about, you're, you're, like you said, behavior change is not your thing. It's not your expertise. But if you had a, a close friend, you cared a lot about them, they were already intrinsically motivated. So this is not you telling someone what to do. This is not you coming alongside and saying, you know, buddy, you really ought to, this is someone who's intrinsically motivated they want to lose weight, how would you approach that with them? Well, the first step for me is, number one, control your food environment. So that's the stuff we've already been talking about. Mm-hmm. 
And number two, eat a lower calorie density, whole food based diet. That's really, those are, that's really the two core elements that I would start with for someone. And there are other things you can layer on top of that if that's not enough. But, um, and let me just clarify what I mean by a lower calorie density, whole food diet. So calorie density refers to the number of calories per gram of a food or per volume of a food. And so things that have more water and more fiber have a lower calorie density. So think about the difference between a bowl of oatmeal, which has a lot of water and a lot of fiber, and white flour crackers, which have very little water and very little fiber. So the same number of calories is going to be a much greater volume of the oatmeal. So that, you know, this is this relates to another aspect that we didn't talk about, but this is how satiety or fullness mechanisms work in the brain. And I, I won't get into the details on that for right now. Essentially, that calorie density is one of the things that helps your brain feel fullness, feel fullness. So lower calorie density per unit calorie, you will feel more full. So basically it causes you to naturally terminate your meals earlier in terms of your calorie intake, yet still feel satisfied with what you ate. And so lower calorie density and whole foods, which goes hand in hand with that. And the main things I think people should be watching out for are refined carbohydrate, like sugars and flours particularly, and isolated fats. So butter, lard, olive oil, even those are things that are, those are the most calorie dense things in our diet. I'm not anti-carbohydrate. I'm not anti-fat, but I think if you're on a whole food based diet, it's better to get your fat from things like avocados and nuts and sure. meat and dairy, better to get your carbohydrate from things like whole fresh fruits and potatoes and whole grains like oatmeal. Um, and if you do that, instead of getting, you know, your fats and carbohydrates from donuts and pizza and, you know, even sometimes other things that people kind of think are healthy, like chocolate, I think you're going to be better off from a weight management perspective. And that, so that would be where I would start with anyone. And then if people need additional layers on top of that, I might add other things like macronutrient restriction, restricting either carbohydrate or fat. And another thing that I generally recommend that people start with is a higher protein diet. So that would also be part of the starting package. Okay. Very good. Very good. Any final words of wisdom? I appreciate your time, but anything that I haven't teed up with the right question that you'd like to throw out there to the audience? I think physical activity is another factor. You know, there's been a lot written lately about how physical activity doesn't cause weight loss or doesn't cause major weight loss. But I think a lot of those studies are based on pretty wimpy protocols and Correct. people not adhering very well to those protocols. Right. And it is nevertheless true that people, if you create a 500 calorie per day calorie deficit with exercise, people don't lose as much weight as you would predict based on a simple model where they never compensate by eating more. But that's not how real life works, of course. People do eat more. I should say, on average, people do eat more sure. when they exercise. But generally, that doesn't totally wipe out the gains for most people. So for most people, there will be a loss of fat. And there's some evidence suggesting that it's, it's more important for maintenance in particular. So people who lose weight, after they lose weight, it helps them to maintain that loss. Um, one other thing I'll mention, actually, there's a, there was a trial that just came out today that was really interesting that I tweeted about. Uh, I think folks will be interested to hear this. It compared rapid fat loss to slow fat loss. So basically a short-term, really strict calorie restriction to a longer-term, more moderate restriction, and then compare the results after a year. And basically, from a fat loss perspective, the fast fat loss which also I should say used a meal replacement um, system, just destroyed the slow fat loss. I mean, it was like more than twice the amount of fat loss at 12 months. So I think that's part of a broader evidence base suggesting that 
slower really is not better. Um, we've kind of been told that slower is better for a long time. Yeah, always. And I'm not aware that that was ever based on any kind of evidence. I think it was always based on kind of this vague feeling that it was dangerous to have too much of a calorie deficit. But if you look at the evidence, I don't see what danger there is. Like, it's not like people are dying. It's not like people are having heart attacks. They're getting healthier and they're losing weight and they're maintaining it better. So to me, I think that's kind of a certainly counter to the popular narrative around weight loss. Interesting. Yeah, I have not heard that. I'll I'll definitely have to look at that study that you mentioned then. Really appreciate you spending the time with us. Thanks for joining us today. Okay, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Folks, that's one of the leading researchers in the world in this area. So, so great to have him on. For those who would like to keep track of his latest findings and recommendations, you can find him on Twitter at WHSource or feel free to connect with me. I'm at Catalyst, the number two, Thrive. And I do my best to retweet highlights from many of our guests, other scientists around the world on a very consistent basis. Thank you for tuning into the number one podcast for health and wellness coaching. Your support and sharing various episodes with friends and peers, it's now put us in the top one and a half percent of all podcasts. We are so grateful. Thank you. As always, please reach out to us. Results at CatalystCoachingInstitute.com anytime if you have any questions about anything coaching related. If you're a coach, I have a little secret to share. You've heard of the coaching event of the year, the Rocky Mountain Coaching Retreat and Symposium, which takes place in glorious Estes Park, Colorado each September, right as the aspen leaves are starting to change. Well, most people don't know this, but if you register before midnight on December 31st, you are going to save a bundle. I know it's way in advance, but you're going to save a bundle on an event you know you're going to be signing up for eventually anyway. And... There's a six-month no-interest option available that allows you to push back the payment while still getting the super early registration discount. So don't tell anyone, but if you want to take advantage of that, now's the time. It's also time to be a Catalyst. This is Dr. Brad Cooper signing off. Make it a great rest of your week, and I'll speak with you soon on the next episode of the Health, Wellness, and Performance Catalyst, or maybe over on the YouTube coaching channel.